Welcome to the We Go Places podcast, where we catch up with WeGo grads who share with us the story of the journey to their unique careers. I'm your host, Brian Turnbaugh, English teacher at WeGo since 2001, and you just heard intro music from Andy Georgieff, class of 2022. Today, I'm excited to talk with class of 2003's Dr. Patrick Bauer, assistant professor at the University of Rhode Island in the College of Environment and Life Sciences. What began as a childhood fascination of the ecology in his backyard here in West Chicago grew into a lifetime of academic inquiry, which has led Patrick to travel the world and lead essential research into food security and sustainable environmental policy. I want to give thanks to Coach Paul McClelland for pointing me in the right direction to reach out to Patrick. On the Podbean episode page, you can find links to Dr. Bauer's recent research and archive links to his blog at patrickbauer.com. Joining us from the class of 2003 is Dr. Patrick Bauer. Patrick, tell us what you do. (laughs) Well, uh, I am an assistant professor of uh, food innovation and policy, officially, at uh, the University of Rhode Island. And I'm in the Sustainable Agriculture and Food Systems Program here and associated with the Fisheries, Animal, and Veterinary Sciences Department and also the Marine Affairs Department. Kind of a mouthful. Patrick, I was wondering if you could kind of uh, talk us through um, what was your path after WeGo? Where did you go? Well, I went from directly from WeGo to uh, undergraduate studies. So I went to college. I went to Harvard University. Um, though, interestingly enough, there was a, a brief interlude in between that summer, I had an internship at the Midwest Energy Efficiency Alliance in downtown Chicago. So I actually spent the summer after my senior year of high school, before I started college, doing the extremely exciting commute from West Chicago into the city every day. <laughs> to you taking the Metro? Taking the Metro. Taking the Metro. Oh, yes. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I went to Harvard and I majored in environmental science and public policy, which was something that I had always wanted to do uh, for about as far back as I can remember. Um, And it was actually one of the reasons I ended up going to Harvard because they had a major in in what I wanted to do. Um, In addition to, you know, obviously it being a very sought after and, and prestigious and, you know, exciting university. Or as my dad said, son, they've got a lot of money. You should get some of it. (laughs) <laughs> um, do, you, do you remember what uh, what was it that was so uh, what piqued your interest uh, in that particular field of study? You said it was something that you had uh, an interest for quite some time. Do you remember what it was that uh, kind of made it very clear to you that that's what you wanted to pursue? Yes, yes. So I so I have this story that I tell and I've been telling it for a long time and it might be apocryphal. It might be real at this point. You know, memory is a sort of fluid thing. We're always kind of recreating it. But um, 
I have this memory, whether it's real or whether I imagined or embellished it, who knows, but of being in, um, it must've been second grade and being in the school library. And this was, I don't know what the school libraries look like in elementary school these days, but at that point in time, they, you know, everything was in print. There wasn't, there weren't digital resources and things like that so much. And, uh, there was, there was a magazine rack of all the, you know, kids magazines and things like that. And, uh, the library had a subscription to Ranger Rick, which was at the time, uh, sort of a kid's version of the publication national and international wildlife. Those are two different magazines that were sort of about conservation biology, um, but sort of popular conservation biology and so forth. And so, you know, this was the early mid nineties and everything was about saving the rainforest and protecting endangered species and the ozone hole and acid rain and, and all that sort of thing. And, um, you know, every one of these Ranger Rick magazines would have, you know, a picture of some really charismatic megafauna, right? A really cute animal of one form or another. Um, you know, and the, you know, the inside would be filled with all these stories about these animals and their lives, how they were, how they were, you know, threatened and things that you could do, right, to, to kind of help out. And it just really caught my attention. And I remember I have this, vid, this vivid memory of, of seeing one of these and it, it um, had like a mountain lion or something like that on the front of it. And I picked it up and I was looking through it and the subscription card fell out. Right. So the magazines would have these subscription cards. And so if you were looking at one of them, you can get the subscription card and get your own subscription. And, and I brought that home and, and talked my mother into getting me a subscription to this thing. And, uh, you know, from then on, I would get these every month and I would pour through them. You know, I had these big stacks of them in my room, you know, after a number of years, because I never threw them out or, or got rid of them or anything like that. You know, and um, so it was really important to me. And, and I think partly because I grew up on the edge of West Chicago. My parents actually still live there. It's, it's in the unincorporated part of the city. So it's unincorporated county land just outside the city official limits. Um, and we had a lot of land, you know, they had five acres and a lot of it was wooded. We had a lot of wildlife. Um, and I, it was a dead end street at the time. It's not anymore, but at the time it was a dead end street. There weren't a lot of other kids on it. I didn't have any siblings and I spent a lot of time outdoors. Um, you know, just sort of like poking around and exploring and whatnot. And, uh, and so that really resonated with me, right? The th I, I sort of had a, this value from just spending time outside and my dad would take me fishing and we'd go camping and canoeing and things like that pretty regularly. And so I, that, that kind of resonated on a personal level. And the idea that this space, these, other life forms and so forth would be threatened and that there, that that was like ours and, you know, humanity's fault and that, you know, we ought to do something about that, that, that was really sort of a powerful message as, as a child for me. Um, and it really stuck with me. And I remember all through childhood friends teasing me about being a tree hugger and, and so forth like that. And I would regularly go up and hug trees just to kind of rub it in their face. <laughs> but, um, uh, but you know, it mattered. And then, you know, over time, I, you know, moved up from Ranger Rick to, you know, the, the official adult publications. Like I said, it was National Wildlife and, and its sister publication, International Wildlife. Um, and they, of course, got progressively more serious and more detailed and, and 
so forth. And um, yeah, and so the, that just sort of sparked this, this gradual evolution and, and interest. And, and the other thing that was really formative was at the time, and this was late 90s, thereabouts, um, you know, DuPage County was one of the fastest developing counties in the entire nation. Um, you know, DuPage County had historically been largely agriculture, largely farmland. Um, and there was this wave of suburban development, which was really accelerating uh, through the mid and late 90s that, that sort of swept over the area. And my parents, were, where I grew up, were right kind of at right at the vanguard of that. Um, and so, you know, I got to... <laughs> I had the privilege of witnessing, right, firsthand um, the kind of dramatic transformation of this landscape, which had been marked by sort of natural or semi-natural lands. We don't think of farmland today necessarily in this moment being natural or semi-natural, and in a lot of ways it isn't. But at the time, at least around West Chicago and in parts of DuPage County, there were a lot of hedgerows still. And there were wooded lots and things like that that were still sort of, you know, wildlands that were interspersed with farmland. farmland. And, and one of these was right across the street from, from my house. It was a big cornfield, but there was a hedgerow. And, and in one corner of that cornfield, there was a several acre lot of really, really old oak trees, you know, 150 years old, probably. They had to have been. They were two, three, four feet in diameter, some of them. And... Uh, you know, at one point that land got sold, got bought up for development and all that got, all that is gone. Not a single one of those oak trees is left. None of that topsoil is left. Just, you know, housing development. Um, I think there's like a Menards there now, a steak and shake, you know, that kind of thing. So that was all, um, you know, kind of in my face growing up. And I wanted to understand just what that was all about, why it happened, why, um, and as I would sort of come to later, why people, right? Why we behave in ways and make decisions that, to me, have always seemed just profoundly wasteful, profoundly sort of short-sighted and damaging. Um, and my sort of understanding of what that means has you know, sort of developed and, and become more nuanced in a whole lot of ways. But that was really kind of the, the spark, I think, that, that set me on this path and, and has stuck with me to the present day. You know, obviously there's, like I said, development and, and nuance and shades of gray and things like that. But the basic idea of just like, why, why are we wasteful, right? That I mean, and just the, the juxtaposition of that, that it was right next to where you grew up and you were able to kind of see that, wait, this is a, this is something that was you know, this very wonderful space where it was, you know, these, these, especially when there's something, not that I, it's a tragedy when you see any other tree kind of get bowled over, but like these beautiful groves of, of oak trees. I had a similar experience when I was um, growing up too, where I lived in between uh, Libertyville and Vernon Hills. And there's this beautiful Cuneo property that I, it was very easy to trespass and I would right. ride my bike through there. And it was, is the best. I just loved, you know, take my bike and go, run, run through there. And uh, somewhere in college, I saw the same thing happen that you were describing where they made a, 
uh, same thing, Menards, uh, uh, condos, a, a golf course, and all those things, and all of that diversity was was just scattered, gone. You know, so it is a you're you're right to say it's a very formative um, experience to kind of be reckoning with the finality of seeing that uh, that very unique local ecosystem just kind of go away for for what exactly? What's the, what is the the trade off if we're saying that there's a nuance? I, I love that how you said that. So um, so now you're in your undergraduate uh, at, at Harvard. I was wondering if you can describe some of like the coursework that really kind of set the hook for you. Were you able to do some uh, traveling uh, with your uh, with your undergraduate uh, classes? <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, I'll tell you a really funny story because I was not very savvy at, at figuring out how to do fun and, and formative travel for a while. So my freshman year, I showed up and, and Harvard had these things called um, freshman seminars. And there were supposed to be these small classes on these really sort of specific topics. You'd get to meet with like, you know, leaders in the field and, and, and do these things. And it was supposed to be this special sort of first thing that you do in your fall semester. And um, I remember pouring through the course catalog and there was one that was called Darwin's Finches. And I looked at it and I said, oh, man, they're going to go to the Galapagos. <laughs> this is going to be amazing. i got to do this. So I go to the first class. And, you know, teacher's going through the syllabus, the topic of the course, blah, blah, blah. And um, after a while, you know, she's like, you know, do, y all, do any of you have questions about this? And I raised my hand and I was just, you know, in my sort of naive, direct fashion was like, Are we, is this class going to go to the Galapagos? And she looked me in the eye and she said, no. <laughs> and I said, okay, well, thanks. And, you know, I ended up not taking the course because that was why I wanted to go. And I found out later that they did, in fact, go to the Galapagos. And she straight up misled me. Um so anyway, that, that experience really spurred me to, you know, say like, okay, I got I to gotta be better at this. I got to get myself out and about. Because, you know, it's funny, up until my junior year of high school, when um, I got to do one of the, the, the um, uh, student exchange programs through, through the language programs, I studied Spanish uh, all, all four years at WeGo. And I, I hope they still do this, but there, there will be student exchange programs. Um, yeah. and, uh, and I went to Costa Rica. That was the first time that I'd ever been on an airplane. Oh, wow. And the first time that I'd been outside of the country it, with the exception of like Ontario, you know, I'd been to Ontario, you know, big one. Um, and not even to like Toronto, I mean, to like Northern Ontario, just over the Minnesota border, you know what I mean? So I had like very little, I'd never really been West of Iowa. You know I mean? Like I, I wasn't, we didn't get around much. And so um, I was like, you know, I, I finally got, you know, in, again, in, into college and so forth. I was like, I got to get out and about. And um, yeah, my first year, I um, was able to work for this travel guide in Spain, this travel guide called Let's Go. It's actually sort of operated entirely by Harvard students, which is kind of as ridiculous as it sounds. Um, <laughs> So I went to Spain for 60 days at the age of 19 and sort of wandered around aimlessly in fairly confused fashion. Um, 
do you know how to is it how much of it is ambling and kind of having the serendipity of finding these places and how much of it is like uh they kind of give you a, a a map and say just revisit and write it up again like what's the what's the uh the balance between those two things so you know let's go's whole pitch is that they send people out every single year to update the guides so the guides are supposed to be updated every single year so you get this like really detailed route. It's like, you got to be here on this date and there on that date and there on that date. And you got to go and, and revisit everything that previous authors have covered and make sure it's still accurate, do updates. And then they give you targeted things of, we want to build out in this, this dimension, or we want to build out in that dimension. And the fascinating thing about that particular experience was, well, it was, it was a couple, it was several fold. I did not find out actually until I came back that the person who had done this route previous to me, and I started in Northern Spain and worked my way down the Pyrenees and sort of ended in Barcelona. Um, the person who'd done the route previously was a senior. He was 22. Um, and at that point in time, you could rent a vehicle as long as you were over 21. And he wrote in his commentary on the route, he's like, you absolutely need to be independent, you need a vehicle to do this route. There, it is just not accessible on public transportation. And so the editors read that and they said, oh, you know what? We should send out somebody who's too young to rent a car and see if that's true. <laughs> they didn't tell me this. They just sent me on the route. Um, and sure enough, it was <laughs> literally impossible in some cases to actually keep up with my route schedule because of where there were train lines and bus lines, how the schedules worked. A lot of times, some of these, you know, especially when I was up in the mountains, I'd be, they'd want me to go visit these little towns, which were amazing, but they'd have one bus a day. And the bus would get in in the evening, and then, it, you know, the driver would stay overnight and then go back to the big city in the morning. And it was like a two-hour drive. Anyhow, so that, that was interesting. And um, again, this was the, literally the second time I had really ever been to a foreign country. Um, and I was 19, very naive in a lot of ways. Um, and they started me off on this route by saying, hey, you know what? We want to add a new city to the guidebook. So we're going to start you in a brand new city for your first day. <laughs> and why don't you just, you know, sort of draft something up from scratch? Um, so, so how do you know where to begin in a new city? Like how, like what do you just kind of look at what, how previous cities and just kind of look at the pattern of how they did that? In retrospect, that would have been a really good way to do it <laughs> with, with the benefit of a certain amount of maturity and life experience and so forth. Yeah. But when I was 19 and I had, you know, I just sort of wandered around. Um, it was, it was fascinating. And, and, you know, it was back at the point when laptops were hugely heavy. And extremely expensive, right? And I was poor. I couldn't, you know, like I had this laptop that I'd blown a huge amount of money to buy. And um, I was terrified that something would, would happen to it because I couldn't afford to replace it. Um, so I was lugging that thing around, this old Dell that was just like probably worth 15 pounds. And, um, and because laptops and so forth were still so kind of precarious and vulnerable, and so forth. My editors made me carry the entire book also in hard copy. So I was logging around Spain for 60 days, this enormous laptop with this like big old charger, 
this ream of hard copy printout of the whole guidebook as backup um, on top of like everything else that I had. So I had this backpack that, my God, it, I, I weighed it at one point and it was about 70 pounds. Um, so I was lugging this stupid thing around in the summer in Spain and even in Northern Spain and it's, it's hot. <laughs> yeah. So, so it, it was, it was really interesting the ways in which that sort of physically constrained my ability to, um, to travel as well, because there was just literally only so far that, that I could carry this thing. And, um, anyway, it, it, it was an interesting trip and I have to, and I have to say that I was really not keeping up on my schedule. I was really falling behind. I was kind of in a bit of despair for probably after the first few weeks because it was just a really steep learning curve. And they just kind of throw you into the fire and see if you sink or swim. And, uh, and, oh yeah. And, and I didn't have any money. You know what I mean? Ah, I, I, they, they pay you, but they don't tell you, or at least, you know, like when you're 19, you maybe don't realize it, that they pay you after you do the work. Right. So, so there was no per diem for you? Like, I mean, they didn't say, well, they hey, by the way, this every, maybe budget $50 for food and lodging? or They would pay me every two weeks, but at the end of the two weeks. So I was oh. constantly running like two weeks behind in terms of having enough money. Uh, anyway, so there was, I, uh, I, I was in Bilbao at one point and I, I was hiding from the landlady that I was renting this room from for a few days. Because every time I would see her, she would ask me if I had the money for rent. And I was like, <laughs> no, I, I don't. But when I get paid, I'm going to pay you. I really will. And, and so like I, I took to like actually like trying to sneak in and out because I was terrified that she was going to like kick me out. And I remember being scared each time I would go back to my room that she would have just like thrown all my stuff out on the, on the curb or something like that. <laughs> Pour water on your laptop. No. Yeah, yeah. And I was just like, oh my God. Um, so it was, it was a stress, you know, it was really an amazing experience, but it was also amazingly stressful. Oh yeah. Uh, and it was, it was honestly, I got so lucky because another, another Wego alum, Mike Dahl, who was also class of 2003 and my best friend, um, came out and traveled with me for about a week at one point. And he saved my bacon because he was this, he looked at what I was doing and he's like, no, no, you're, you're crazy. You're doing this all wrong. You know what I mean? You need to step back. You need to get organized. You need to get disciplined. And it was, it was really amazing. It was sort of like having, um, you know, a personal trainer come along and say, no, this is what, you know, blowing the whistle. At you. <laughs> and uh, sort of got me back on track. And, and also it was a lonely experience, you know, traveling by yourself in a foreign country um, where, you know, I was reasonably fluent in Spanish, but not that comfortable and you're moving around from day to day and you can kind of meet people, but on the whole, you spend a lot of time by yourself and I wasn't used to that either. So that was an interesting, interesting aspect, but, um, but so that was really helpful. It kind of got me back on track in terms of organization, but also, you know, kind of psychologically, I think, and emotionally. Um, so, I mean, it was an incredible trip. I got to see some amazing things. I mean, we went to, um, uh, <clears throat> San Fermin, right? Uh, mm -hmm. The big seven day long festival where they do the running of the bulls. We got to go to that. We stayed up wow. all night <laughs> on the street with no money. We went to a, we went to a bullfight, which 
is one of the more horrifyingly, just viscerally violent experiences that I've ever been to just in terms of, I mean, that's what it is. It is a bullfight and it is uh, extremely bloody and extremely violent, but also this cultural experience, which is rightly coming to an end, but to sort of get a chance to like see something that would shortly become history was just amazing. Um, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. You know what I mean? And you know, sure. we, we got to see the running of the bulls and, um, did you, did you go on, were you in the streets for that? Or were you no, like, no, 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 no. We were fortunately <laughs> not that naive and not that foolish. We, <laughs> we watched from the other side of the fence and we're quite glad of it. Um, uh, one of the people who ran that year got, pretty severely injured and we saw that happen. So, um, Oh, wow. But we did that. I mean, I was all up and down the Pyrenees. We got to spend, I spent time in Barcelona. I ate amazing food. I um, imagine. I was, uh, I was a runner in college and so I was running the entire time too. And I got to just go on some of the most amazing runs in my life, which is just a whole different way to experience a place and a culture and a landscape and just a geography. You know what I mean? Um, right around the right around the time, uh, I think I was telling you this before. We accidentally came across your edition of Let's Go. My, my wife and I were going to go to. Uh, it was right around two thousand five, two thousand six, and um, we were in Barcelona in two thousand six. And there's this. It, it was the most beautiful, serendipitous. It was called Placa Neri, and. Um, it was on the Barrio Gotique, which is, you know, pretty trendy. Everyone kind of goes there now and all this stuff. But like we were sitting there and there's a fountain and in this plaza, there was a kind of swanky hotel in the corner. And then there was someone who was playing some live music and we were sitting at a fountain and these orange blossoms like just started falling on top of us, just like the tree released it. And then you're looking around and you could see bullet holes like in the walls of this plaza and you're like there's a lot going on here there's so much yeah. history there's so much nature and it was all converging i look at my wife and i'm like is this is this happening it was it was, it was transcendent it was incredible and that's that's the experience that you can get it at home that's the funny thing you can get it right where you are but yes. something about our human nature you know what i mean it, it's hard for us to to really see or, or sort of experience, I think that those things which are close by, um, we just take them for granted. You know what I mean? And that, but you travel and you get out of your comfort zone a little bit, and you have the potential for these sorts of experiences. And and yeah, that was the first trip where I really, I think, got to experience that kind of feeling. I mean, I at one point I. Um, one of the things they wanted me to do because I was kind of, you know, quote unquote outdoorsy was um, to really add a whole outdoor hiking component to the guide because I hadn't really gone into that. I'd been mostly a city focused guide. Um, and so they had me go to all these national parks. And at one point I decided that I would hike across one of the parks. It was only like maybe 18 miles or something like that. So it wasn't, you know, like a massive hike. It was an overnight, um, you know, and it's Europe. So <laughs> By overnight, it's not like you're camping in a tent. You stop at a shelter and they give you dinner if you can afford it and so forth. Um, but, I mean, I was on that hike and um, 
I was going over this pass and it was July and um, I was all alone, like up in this alpine kind of meadow. And it was just, you know, these stunning vistas in every direction. And um, I look up and there's this mountain goat sitting up there, like looking down at me. And uh, right next to it is this snowfield. And I had never in my life seen snow in July. (laughs) And so I scrambled up after this mountain goat just so that I could throw a snowball in July. Completely by myself, kind of like on what felt like the top of the world, you know what I mean? Yeah. And um, just experiences like that. Or, or, or one day I was, I went up to visit this, um, this little park. It was about six miles outside of this, this sort of small town that was a, um, the end point for a, a religious pilgrimage. Um, so it was sort of like a lot of history and, and so forth, but a small little place. And there was this park that was about six miles outside of it. And they had a little visitor center and uh, I hadn't been on my run for the day. And I was like, oh, I, I really, this is a great spot. I would love to go run around this park and just see what, what's here. Um, and I did, and it started raining and it started getting dark and I got a little bit lost and I get back and I'm like soaking wet. Um, and I grab my bag from the visitor center and they're like, Oh, you know what? You missed, you just missed the last shuttle back to town. I was like, Oh, okay. <laughs> it's like six o'clock in the evening by this point. And, um, I was just like, well, I, I guess I got to walk to six miles back to town Let's start. And, um, I'm leaving and, and there's nothing out there, right? Like literally the end of this road is just this park and that's it. There's nothing else. And I was like, well, shoot. Um, so I'm walking back and uh, all by myself. And all of a sudden this like little car comes by. And I mean little, like a little European style car. And um, it kind of flashes its lights and honks at me and stops a little bit ahead. And so I walk up to it and it's all the park rangers. And they're all women. And there's five of them already in this tiny car. And they're like... <laughs> We feel so bad. Are you walking back to town? And I was like, yeah, I, I don't. I, I needed the shuttle and it's gone. And and they said, well, we'll give you a ride. You know, you can't walk back to town. It's raining and it's dark. And I was like, oh, my gosh. I mean, are we all going to fit? And they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. So they like they all of them piled in the back seats that I could have the passenger seat. And I drove back to town with them. And it was so funny. They, they thought it was hilarious. They were having just such a great time because they were, this was like this grand, this sort of like grand adventure of this time. They picked up this random American kid who was lost in the, <laughs> in the Spanish countryside. And, um, you know, just little moments like that, you know, when you're like, this is. Yeah. Travel, travel. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a great thing. I, I had so many, uh, I, I, I did a little backpacking in Spain once I, I took a month in Turkey uh, once uh, about a lo- uh, you know twenty years ago, um, and it was amazing. Sa- same th- time, like, just incredible experiences, being absolutely stunned by nature, and then meeting really cool people along the way. It's it's really such an amazing kind of tandem of those things. And it's like I think that the fancy word for that is like in like when you avail yourself in that like liminal space of of travel loosens up your perceptions to to kind of have that perception ways you, you wouldn't have otherwise. Like because at home you're used to routines, you know, you 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 don't you can't step outside of yourself. And I think that's what's so so amazing about travel. Certainly do it right. 
And I mean, it's that kind of experience that I think has been really important for me to carry forward to a certain extent, um, you know, career-wise and so forth as well. And I ended up um, doing a similar kind of trip in terms of I just went to um, a foreign country. In this case, it was Chile um, right before my senior year uh, to do, you know, quote unquote research. I mean, I did do research. It was for my senior thesis and so forth. But again, I sort of didn't know what I was doing necessarily and sort of fumbled my way through. Um, But it was, you know, it was that earlier experience of having worked for this travel guide that kind of, I think, gave me the confidence to say, oh, I can just go and do this thing and it'll work out. And and it did. And, and I was able to um, pull together a pretty decent research project and, and wrote my honors thesis on um, sustainable development and eco-ethnotourism and, and the Alerce forests of southern Chile. And um, uh, which was just, again, sort of incredibly formative in a lot of ways. And the interesting thing about it was that it made me realize that I actually didn't want to look outside anymore, if that makes sense, for my research, but I wanted to actually focus back at home, as it were. So, you know, you have to, you have to go far away to realize that what you were looking for is (laughs) right where you were. Um, (laughs) And, uh, so it was interesting. I mean, as incredible as that experience was, it also convinced me that that I needed to be working more in the United States um, and doing work, <laughs> trying to work on on our own problems, which are very severe right here at home, rather than going and trying to butt my head into somebody else's problem somewhere else. Um, it was kind of how I, in a very simplistic way. Uh, to, to relate how I was kind of looking at it. Um, so, but yeah, but all of that, you know, it's, it's, these things build on one another in these, these strange, unexpected ways. Then, so then you, you graduate from Harvard and then you then, uh, how do you then make the move to, uh, to Berkeley? <laughs> yeah. So, um, I don't know, you know, graduating college was a very disorienting experience. You know, because it's this intense four years, there's a clear goalpost at the end of it. Um, and everything's so focused on that. I was so focused on that. And I think a lot of people that I knew were as well, that when you get there, you realize that uh, I realized that I hadn't thought that much about what came after that. And so it was this profoundly disorienting moment of, oh, what what am I going to do now? Um, and I had no idea. I remember I interviewed for just random stuff. You know, it, it was, Harvard was this interesting place where, especially at the time, this was 2007. So before the big, the great recession of 2008 and everything kind of came crashing down, people were still flying high, you know, in the world of finance and so forth. And I had all these people that I knew teammates and, and so forth that were going into finance and they're going to make the big bucks, you know, and, um, go work in New York for Goldman Sachs or, or JP Morgan or something like that. Or, or like do management consulting or, you know, with Boston consulting group or, or Bain or one of these big things. And 
it was kind of glossy and there were these recruiters would come to campus and you needed a suit. And, and I, I remember kind of getting drawn into that world a little bit. And I did some of these interviews and it was one of the most uncomfortable experiences I've ever had in my life. Um, none of them went anywhere, probably not very surprisingly, because I clearly didn't fit in that world. Um, and I'm sort of grateful to having done them to realize that that wasn't me. Um, but it was sort of like, I just sort of tell that story to talk about just like the extent to which I was just confused about what, what I was doing and where I was, where I was going next. You know, I'd done this major that was environmental science and public policy. And it, it wasn't like there was a, a specific career waiting after that. You know what I mean? Um, and that's the case of a lot of majors and a lot of folks coming out of college. And, um, and I didn't really want to go back to Illinois. Um, and I didn't know where I wanted to go, but I also needed money because I was, you know, <laughs> unemployed. And, um, and I just, uh, it was really interesting because the decision ended up kind of getting made for me in a way, in a roundabout kind of way, because I um, had been dating a woman for a couple of years who's now my wife. Um, and she was dead set on going into medicine going to medical school, going the doctor route, which she did and has been very successful and, and does that today. Um, but I sort of leaned on her life plan a little bit. And she said, well, I'm going to med school. I'm going to University of Maryland because that's where she was from. And, uh, you know, it was like, I want you to come with me. And I kind of looked around and I said, well, let's do it. I got what, what else am I going to do? Um, and, and so I was like, okay, that's one, that's one parameter in place. I'm going to be in Maryland. And I kind of went from there. Um, and I was like, okay, well, I'll look for jobs there. I'll look for opportunities there. And um, I was able to get um, an internship at the Union of Concerned Scientists doing, interestingly enough, um, work in their scientific integrity uh, division. And this was right at the end of uh, the George W. Bush administration, which uh, for anybody listening that's not familiar, was an administration that was one of the first to be really embroiled in um, sort of debates about the politicization of science, particularly around climate science and around various environmental environmental sciences and so forth. And so working in scientific integrity at that moment was, was a really interesting and very sort of active uh, sphere. And I was in DC um, doing that. So that was kind of interesting. And um, yeah, I kind of pivoted off that. I was there for a little while. I wasn't making nearly enough money because I was an intern and I ended up working as a tutor for a while for, um, for SAT and ACT and then some various other um, sorts of testing and, and, and whatnot, um, which was a weird kind of selling my soul kind of moment as well. It paid really, really well, but it was also kind of icky because it was like, I can artificially improve the scores of kids whose parents can afford to pay me, um, which, you know, it, that was sort of a weird thing, but it paid the bills at the time. And, um, but, uh, yeah, that, that internship was about six months and I spent a lot of it looking for a more permanent job. 
um, and uh, wound up for probably the only time in my life I got a job via a cold call application. Um, I just I saw a, a, a position advertised for a research assistant at um, the National Academy of Sciences. That was at the time it was called it was the the um, uh, National Research Council. They've since sort of reorganized how they how they do things. But I was at the Board of Environmental Studies and Toxicology, and they had this position. And so I just put in my application, my resume, and and so forth, and they gave me an interview. And I came in, and uh, and I found out that the guy who was interviewing me, the boss, was only interviewing me because he'd recognized the organ, the the nonprofit that I was working for, the Union of Concerned Scientists, and he thought he had a big beef with the Union of Concerned Scientists. And the only reason that he brought me in is because he wanted to go on a loud rant, a long rant, about how much he thought the organization that I was interning with was a crock of horse hooey. And so I went to this interview and just sat and listened for 45 minutes to this rant. And he said, well, you know, thanks for interviewing for the job. We'll let you know. And he, he like, I didn't, he didn't ask me a single question. That was it. <laughs> and I went back to my, my desk at, at the Union of Concerned Scientists, and I sat down and I thought about it, and I was like, I think he's got the wrong organization. I think he was confused about which organization he's got beef with. And so I started asking around from some of the people who had been around for a while at, at my organization and, um, and did some you know searching online, dug up some old news reports and news items and, and so forth and, and this and that, and, and, re- and came to realize that indeed he was mistaken. <laughs> no way. <laughs> so I sent him an email. And I said, dear Dr. Risa, thank you for interviewing me today and, and for, you know, um, uh, you know, telling me the story of, you know, how this organization, you know, caused this problem in a way that was unscientific and so forth. Um, I, I really appreciated the, you know, the chance to get some insight into that kind of, of complication in your line of work. Um, I wanted to reach out to you just to um, uh, correct the record, however, because I believe you got the wrong organization. And so I proceeded to go on and, and just sort of lay out exactly what had happened with sources and citations. <laughs> and, just like, and, and so, you know, just respectfully, I wanted to just, you know, make sure that, um, you know, the right organization is implicated, um, you know, in this situation that you don't hold any ill will toward the Union of Concerned Scientists because you got the wrong guys. Thank you again for your time and consideration. Sincerely. Bauer. One hour later, he emails me back and he's like, I'd like to make you a job offer. <laughs> so that was that was how I, I got my my first job where I actually just sort of had to had to cold call was was did you have any actual interactions with him again where it was like, oh, we're not going to talk about that ever again. We never talked about it again. 
<laughs> Never talked about it again. Oh, that's amazing. He was, a, he was a character. I remember. It's funny though. Like you just like something just didn't settle well with you. Like just something like that, that, that how, how outrageous his claims were when it just didn't match up with the reality of what you knew what you're doing. So uh, that was a, uh, that was a uh, very brave of you to, uh, to, to re uh, re-engage uh, with that email, but obviously it, it set you on this incredible, you know, path, you know, to, to, to get the job. And, you know, I mean, I'm not sure what it is. I'm not sure if it's part of how I was, how I was brought up, the role models that I had growing up. Um, you know, I get a lot of advantage for being, um, you know, a young white man too, right? Mm-hmm. I get certain privileges. I can speak my mind in a certain way that other people don't necessarily have the opportunity to do, or they're going to get shut down in different sorts of ways. Um, and I've been able to lean on that for sure. Um, but I've, it's always been clear to me, I think that I needed to say what I feel needs to be said and not in a way that's not recognizing or respectful of the impact that that might have on other people. That's not what I'm saying. I think too many people these days take something like that and they say, well, that means I'm free to say whatever I want and I don't have to face any consequences. I don't think that's, I don't, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is I I feel like it's, it's important once you've looked and thought about what are the consequences of of what I'm about to say and and sort of come to to terms with that and, and decided to go forward with it, not to be intimidated, right? Mm hmm. By, especially by folks who are in a position of power of one form or another. Um, And that's been really important to me and it's still important to me today. It's a lot of how I approach my writing and my teaching and my interactions is to kind of always cut to the truth of the matter. And like on a good day, I don't beat around the bush. You know what I mean? I try to cut right to, okay, th- this, this is the nub of the issue. This is really what's going on. Let's not try to avoid the topic or, you know, but let's, let's actually look at it for what it is. And um, even when that's uncomfortable. And um, I think that's really been important for my work and my entire sort of um, trajectory. And, and it's sort of interesting. And I reflect on this sometimes because I'm not, Sometimes it's something to be proud of and sometimes it's not, <laughs> but, um, but it has been sort of a key motif. And one of the reasons that I went into academia in the first place, because I thought, and to a certain extent I still do, that it's one of the few places where you do have the opportunity to pursue what is true, right? Not true with like a capital T, but you know, true with a lowercase kind of contingent sort of T. Um, in a way that you can kind of do that, right? And I think a lot of it came from my father and, and you know, honestly, his father before him and so forth and, and things like that. And also my mother, um, who both were always very much on the side of 
you do the right thing and then let the cards fall where they will, <laughs> right? And you do it the best way you know how, right? And, and don't try to let somebody else tell you not to do it because you're wrong. And, um, and my father is an artist and so is my mother, both of them in fine arts, both sculptors. And, um, and that creative element, but also that, that element of doing things your own way is just, again, kind of how I learned to do things. And it's really funny. One of my uncles has a, he's like, well, <laughs> there's the right way to do things. And then there's the way I do things. And uh, I, that, that, uh, that sort of saying that he has is, has also stuck with me for a long time. And, and for better or worse, yeah, I've, I've sort of always felt that I kind of need to figure things out for myself, even if that usually means doing things the wrong way and screwing it up. Um, and then going back and trying to fix it later is usually the way that I end up doing things. Um, but, uh, but it's the way that I know how. And it does, it's a hard way to do things. Um, and it, it's a slow way to do things, but it has allowed me to do some things that I think other people wouldn't have done. Right. Um, and still lets me do things in ways that, that other people weren't, wouldn't be able to do. And that's part of the reason why I'm, I'm an interdisciplinary scholar is how I frame myself because I don't come out of a, um, really rigidly defined set of disciplinary um, boundaries, as it were, or like prescriptions on how to do things. I've always kind of approached it much more creatively. Um, and I really do think about my work as, as a scientist, right, as a researcher, as a scholar, not in terms of discovering new knowledge, but really in terms of creating new ways of understanding the world. And I really do think of that as a creative activity um, rather than sort of a discovering kind of activity, which maybe is a little bit iconoclastic in some ways with the way that a lot of people think about what science is and how science operates in the world. Um, I really like that idea of, of synthesis, you know, that you just said there where you as an interdisciplinary scholar, you, you draw from science, but at the back of that, you always have your, the scientific method to kind of back you up, test yourself uh, and all that. I was wondering if you could maybe talk more about like that, the various intersections of how you begin the pursuit of one of your questions that you research and how the interdisciplinary folds together and all that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. I always seem to come to my research question at the end. It's always a process of reverse engineering, which sort of surprises a lot of people whenever I talk about that. Um, my very first year in grad school at Berkeley, um, which, which, by the way, to, to go back just a second, um, and we'll go back around. If you've ever read Proust, that's the way my mind works. Like the, <laughs> Anyway, um, so I wound up in Berkeley and basically on that whole pathway through like, and, and I want to be clear about this through total serendipity, total serendipity. And I want, and I want, and I want to tell this story because I think it's really important for, for anybody listening or any students or anything like that as well. Um, because a lot of the way that I think at least I've approached doing things in my life is, is trying to take advantage of opportunities as, as they arise 
And sometimes they arise in really surprising and, and not predictable ways. Um, but you also have to be ready and you have to kind of make <laughs> the chance for those opportunities to, to come up in the first place. But coming out of my first two years at, in undergrad, I was this environmental science and public policy major, which was sort of a free-floating major without a department. And it turned out what that meant, that it was super disorganized, um, kind of a grab bag of random assortment of courses that have been cobbled together from all over the place. And they stuck like a stamp on top of it and said, Hey, this is a real thing. And you're like, well, no, this isn't a real thing. This is, you kind of went to the junkyard and you, you know, stuck a bunch of things together with duct tape and called it a duck. Um, and, uh, and I got real, I was really disillusioned because I'd taken, um, uh, a little bit of environmental engineering and a little bit of climate science and a little bit of biology. And I'd taken some advanced calculus and I'd taken some physics and I'd taken some economics, you know, I'd taken just a little bit of everything. And, um, and I was like, what, like I'm taking a bunch of intro stuff. This is a really boring B. I don't know how it all fits together. C, I don't know what I'm doing here. Like none of this felt like it had any purpose. You know what I mean? It was all really abstract. And I got really disillusioned and I almost actually ended up doing an entire year study abroad with this program that kind of would have bounced around and so forth. Cause I was kind of trying to run away from the problem as it were. And I ended up not doing that when I realized that I was running away from the problem instead of addressing it, which was that I didn't know what I wanted to do. And uh, anyway, so like kind of in the beginning of my junior year, I was sort of coming to this realization that I needed to change course a little bit and I needed to find my way. And, um, and I went and, and tried to talk to this guy who was the head of the program or one of the, the lead faculty on this, this program. And I went into his office and I kind of explained my, my disillusionment, my sense of, of, of feeling lost and disoriented and not sure what I was doing. And, and um, he kind of was like, oh, yeah, 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 here, here, read this book and then um, come talk to me again. You know, he kind of, in retrospect, he kind of just brushed me off and he gave me this book. But this book was um, uh, by Mary Douglas and Aaron Woldovsky, and it was called Risk and Culture. And what the book was about, um, we don't, it's not really necessary to go into significant detail, but it was about the social construction of risk, which means the ways in which calculating risk, right? Like the risk of say a nuclear explosion at a nuclear fission plant or the risk of getting cancer from a certain environmental exposure to um, a given toxin or something like that. Those risks are not an objective scientific measurement so much as they are kind of what we would refer to as an assemblage of yeah, technical measurements, but also values, judgment calls, um, a lot of guesswork in some cases, and certain sort of negotiated levels of what we're willing to tolerate as a given society. And the whole book was kind of about this and just basically going into this view of risk that was much more social as opposed to technical. Um, that really resonated with me. And I said, this, this is going back to that original question that I had when I wanted to come here, which is just why do we humans, people, societies make the decisions that we do, especially when those decisions, again, seem 
harmful or dangerous or wasteful or just short-sighted. I was like, that's what I want to get back to. And so I read the book and I came back to him and I was like really excited. And, and he's like, oh yeah, you know, I really, um, I got a meeting to go to. I need you to go talk to, why don't you go talk to somebody else? And it wasn't until much, much later that I realized that he'd sent me to the, the door of a faculty member who he had a long running kind of tiff with. And he was clearly <laughs> dumping me on a faculty member that he didn't like very much, um, which is really funny. But I had no idea of any of this at the time. And I go down the hallway and I knock on the door of um, Dr. Sheila Jasanoff, uh, who is really famous within the field of science and technology studies and uh, is, is a really sort of foundational scholar in the study of science and democracy, right? The way that scientific institutions and scientific practice and communities of experts um, operate in a liberal democracy, right? And in, in, in a government by the people and for the people. Um, and I just walked down the hall and I knocked on her door. And now I know how ridiculously unlikely this is, but she was actually there. <laughs> and she asked me to come in. And everything that happened afterward was contingent upon that moment. Because she took me under her wing. I ended up doing an independent study with her that launched my entire career. She was my thesis advisor. And I ended up in grad school, and this is where I'm coming back to, where the earlier questions you asked, I ended up working with two of her former graduate students. And that moment shaped my entire career trajectory um, in, in this weird sort of winding way. But even then it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't fixed. Like I said, I spent about three years after college in Maryland and, and I got this job at the National Academies um, and it was a really cushy job in a lot of ways. It, I didn't have to work that hard. It paid pretty well. It had nice benefits. Um, I had basically perfect job security forever. And they would have even paid me to go get um, a master's degree. And I really almost did that. I almost settled. I almost said, oh, I'm just going to go get an, uh, a master in public health, an MPH from Johns Hopkins University. Uh, it'll take me three or four years of night school, but my job will pay for it. And then I'll have a master's degree. I can move up in the organization. I'll have a whole career. Um, and that almost happened. I almost abandoned everything, this other path that I'd been set on, except for one day wow. on the train. I was on the train and I was commuting from Baltimore to D.C., which is about an hour on the Mark train. And um, the Mark train is, is like the Metro, but it's, it's younger cousin that gets all the hand-me-downs. <laughs> Literally the Mark trains were old Metro trains that Mark had bought used from Metro. You could still wow. see the Metro erased. And like, oh. No way. Yeah, it was, it was really funny anyway, but they were always breaking down. You know what I mean? <laughs> and then they'd get delayed and they'd break down and, and this one day, it was in the middle of the summer. So in Maryland, it was hot. It was humid. The train had broken down. The air conditioning was out. It was god awful inside. And we we're just sitting in the middle of nothing waiting for them to fix the train. We'd already been delayed like 45 minutes or 50 minutes. And I was sitting next to this guy. He was probably in his like, I don't know, late 40s, early 50s, something like that. And kind of a guy in a rumpled suit and everything. And he's kind of staring out the window. And, and as we're sitting there, he turns to me and he's like, you know, today marks the 20th year 
I've been riding this train. And that was all he said. And he turned and he looked sort of forlornly back out the window again. And I sort of <laughs> paused and like my, my mouth, like my jaw dropped down to my feet. And I was like, my eyes got wide. And I was like, holy shit. I got to go back to grad school. Like, what am I doing? I got to get out of this. And, um, and that night I went, I went home and I started looking at grad schools and I started initiating that whole process. I reached back out to Sheila and, and, um, again, it was partly my wife too, kind of lit the fire under me to make it happen because she had really specific timing for when she finished med school, when she needed to do, to do residency. And it's a very fixed, rigid system. And she's like, if you want to go to grad school, you need to get this figured out like ASAP and in advance so that I can plan my career so that it, it, it'll match up with where you are. And um, it was sort of like the combination of those two things that got me moving again, you know, and that was how I wound up at Berkeley when I did and, uh, and so forth. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, so all of that, right. That kind of serendipity, that kind of, but also that sort of openness to being, to latching onto an opportunity, to latching onto something concrete as an anchor point and say, okay, here's a given. Now we can figure things out from here. And that's kind of how I still approach my work today, right? Is kind of in this sort of opportunistic, let's see what we find kind of way. So my very first semester at Berkeley, in typical fashion, I went and I had really no idea what I wanted to do. Um, I knew I wanted to do stuff around environmental decision-making, right? How just how does sustainability work? How does a society become more sustainable? Blah, 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 blah. Small question, right? Um, and really within that, I had no good understanding of, of what I wanted to do. I was kind of vaguely interested in land use and land use change. Again, coming out of that earlier experience of seeing such dramatic land use change, you know, right in West Chicago and in DuPage County. Um, I, I was kind of vaguely interested in that. And that ended up morphing into sort of food systems work, largely because it was an opportunity, again, because it was kind of becoming popular at the time. Michael Pollan had just a couple of years before published Omnivore's Dilemma. Um, it's kind of people were getting interested in agriculture and food again in a way that hadn't happened for a long time. And, um, but uh, yeah, it was that first semester and there was this very senior faculty member who sort of just off and like kind of like an off the cuff comment at one point at some department event or something like that had been like, you know, here's a bit of advice for you. You know what I mean? When you're settling on a topic, don't be hasty. Don't be too prescriptive. She's like, you got to get your feet on the ground and you got to noodle. That was how she called it. She's like, you got to noodle. I love that. And what she, and she said, and, and you might noodle for six months. You might noodle for a year, a year. You might noodle for two years. You just noodle and you don't worry about it. You just keep your eyes open and your ears open and you keep your brain working and you take notes. And you wait for it to come to you. And if you have patience, it will. And that struck me as the right method for me. And it's the same way that it's, it's the same way I'd been doing things forever. And now I had somebody tell me that it was okay to do things that way. Um, and it's still today how I do my research. I, I sort of, you know, I look at certain topic areas and I say, well, this seems to be something weird going on here. And that might be the extent of my intuition, 
right? There's something strange. There's some sort of tension. There's some sort of conflict. There's some sort of activity that's bubbling under the surface here. And I want to understand what that's about. And what I do is I try to spend time with that phenomenon, with the people who are experiencing it. I do a lot of interview work. I do a lot of site visits. I do a lot of just simple observation. And I do a lot of reading. Um, A lot of the sort of phenomena I I work on are in um, kind of like the policy realm or something like that. So a lot of the activity happens in writing, right, through various reports and documents and hearings and comments and all that kind of stuff. So it's kind of the same way. I approach the same way. I do a bunch of reading and a lot of times I'm just sort of almost passively observing, just kind of letting it wash over me and just paying attention, really trying to pay close attention and then letting my kind of subconscious mull it over for however long it takes. And then out of that, after just paying, it's amazing, but the story starts to become clear after a while. The the tensions become clear, the frictions, what's at stake, what's actually going on here, what are the key moving pieces, right? And then I can go in and start to more systematically build the analysis kind of iteratively around that intuition of what is interesting. And that's how I started doing my work on food safety and sustainability. Um, And that all started because um, my wife got onto an elevator with the right guy. It's amazing, like how whether or not it's a, a subscription card falling out of a magazine or a random uh, wake up call on a on a, a train ride. There's just so many like little wonderful little serendipitous nudges that keep on happening. I love this. It's great. Yeah. And and so again, it's serendipity, but it's also method to a certain extent, right? It, it's being sure. open to and aware of when things fall into my lap, right? Or, or, or pop up that it's like, this is an opportunity. Um, and so what had happened is my, my wife was in residency at Kaiser Hospital in Oakland. And Kaiser is, is a huge, huge medical um, system in the Bay Area of California. The largest medical system there. It's old. It's got its roots back in the, the you know, World War II era um, steel yards to build warships and so forth. Um, <clears throat> uh, anyway, she was doing her residency there and she was doing her residency with this guy who was the son of a really senior doctor within the Kaiser organization. And he was kind of at the point in his career where he was kind of doing his sort of swan song victory lap before retirement. And what he wanted to do was reform the hospital's food system. What he wanted to do was reform their food purchasing um, system and the kind of food preparation uh, and provisioning that they did for guests to the hospital, staff at the hospital and patients at the hospital. And Kaiser was kind of this unique system. Things are starting to turn a little bit more this way, but Kaiser, but still there's a lot long way to go, but really looking at preventive health, preventive care for, for health, right? As opposed to just sort of reactive biomedicine. You know, you just give people a pill or do a procedure or do a surgery or something like that. So let's keep people healthy in the first place. Um, And so they were like, well, diet, diet is a key part of that, right? You got to eat healthy to be healthy so you don't have health problems. Um, 
And so Kaiser is really behind this. And, and so Preston Marion, that was his name, was, was looking at it. And he said, well, we, we want to do this. So we want to buy f- fresh fruits and vegetables. We want to be in season. We want it to be sustainable, like kind of holistic vision. Um, and uh, my wife had stepped into an elevator with him and he recognized her because she was resident with his son. And they were talking and she happened to mention that um, that I was interested in kind of doing some work with food systems for my graduate program. And he turned to her and he's like, tell him to come talk to me because I got this weird problem. where We, we want to buy all this local healthy food and we can't because of food safety. Come, have him come talk to me. And that was it. And and I did. I emailed him and we set up a, a chat at a coffee shop and he sat down and he told me how they really wanted to do this. They wanted to buy from, from small scale local farmers. They wanted to buy fresh fruits and vegetables to really support the local food system and, and be you know um, sustainable and resilient and healthy and all the good things. But they couldn't because they, for liability reasons and because of the particularly vulnerable health status of people in a hospital system, right? These are patients. They might be immunocompromised or otherwise you know, in a vulnerable health state. Um, it's like, we have to be just so, so careful about food safety, particularly about anything that might contaminate the food, especially pathogens, E. coli, listeria, salmonella, the things that you hear about in the headlines whenever there's like a big recall, right? Um, and he said, we can't figure out how to do this. We can't figure out how to have these guys be safe enough on paper that we can do our due diligence as it's understood on our end and not put ourselves in a position of extreme liability. And that was how I started doing everything that I started doing because I, I, I heard that story and in my mind I said, that's really weird. Sustainability is supposed to be this big tent, right? It's supposed to deliver all these amazing societal goods. But here we've got the situation where we've got now suddenly safety opposed to sustainability. That's weird. How does that come about? What does that mean? What is that actually doing in the world? And I still do that work today. And you're right, because it's such a, a unique needle to thread, because the moment that you have to give some type of policy um, advice to that particular small farmer, maybe something that creates a type of um, expense that then makes it less likely for them to give the type of food that they want. I mean, there's there's a, there's a give and take with that. So you're right. You have to kind of thread that needle. Where's the and that's where the creativity has to come in through uh, in such a way. That's fascinating. Yeah, and in a problem like that, you can't look at it through a single disciplinary lens, right? It doesn't work. I can't look at it as just an economic problem. Oh, there's there's certainly economic dimensions to it. It's really expensive to be formally compliant with food safety best practices and regulations. You got to pay for a lot of testing. You got to pay for a lot of record keeping. You have to pay for audits and certifications. A um, lot, lot of different just direct expenses, not to mention just the training and the equipment and the tools and the sanitizing agents and so forth that you need to like, you know, keep a, a safe farm operation, for example. Yeah, there's economic dimensions to it, but that's not everything, right? There's sociological dimensions to it. There's governance dimensions to it. There are cultural dimensions to it as well. Um, and 
there are also very, very real biophysical and ecological dimensions to it. And so have, so a lot of what I've sort of built my career on is the ability, the carefully cultivated ability and skill set to try to put all of those dimensions together into a common framework and to, and to really try to make sure that none of them slip from view. Because that's, that's the danger, especially when it gets into policy. As policymakers want to glom onto one thing that they can say, hey, we're going to do this thing and we're going to be able to show to our constituents or to um, you know, whoever's overseeing us or to whoever we need to speak to that we did a thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So they want to glom to get their attention one, again. one concrete problem. And so a lot of my work is to try to constantly push back against that tendency to narrow the field of vision, to look at singular problems in isolation and say, no, 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 no. We need to, we need to look at systems, which is a really uncomfortable thing for a lot of people to deal with and to wrap their heads around. And, and, and to a certain extent, it's, it's a human thing, right? We, we, have, we have the brains that we have and we have cognitive limitations. Um, and, uh, and it's really hard for us to keep track of, of for example, um, multiple pathways of causality, right? Or forms of causality where you don't have a single cause and a single effect, right? Where you have multiple causes leading to multiple effects with feedback loops. That's, that gets really, really difficult to conceptualize, to even imagine, to hold in your head really quickly. Um, You're right. Because with, with the systems, you know, I mean, is there, is, is there a system as you are approaching like a, a type of heuristic of, let's say, confronting the, the issue? Is there a system that you kind of look underneath that rock first? Is there a first, like, I'm going to look at the economics. I'm going to look at the biodiversity. Is there one that you kind of initially go after or does it, it does it avail itself first? And then you're like, I'm, I'm going to go with the most obvious uh, as you uh, kind of uh, um, begin your, your inquiry. I think it's probably, probably the latter. You know, I sort of start with what's most salient, right. Or what sticks out the most. Um, because that's what you latch onto. And then I'm always looking for the connections to those other dimensions. Right. So, um, yeah, so, so that, that's important. Um, there are certain elements that tend to be more salient more often than others. Right. So, um, you know, economics often tends to stand out. It's just the way that our society is kind of primed to think. We look first to the financials, right? To the cost and cost and return and so forth. Um, so often that's sort of for, front, front and center um, in interesting ways. In certain ways, some environmental impacts can also be very salient, very front and center in terms of pollution, for example, or these days, um, greenhouse gas emissions or something like that. Um, so those can sometimes be very front and center. What often tends to fall into the background are the deeper sort of softer or less 
tangible systems or, or elements of, of systems. So culture, right? Value systems, norms, um, the way that we organize ourselves. And that can be a little abstract. The, one of the common examples that I give is it's common to talk about farms in this country, right? It's common to talk about farmers. But what actually is a farm and what actually is a farmer? Mm. Because I challenge anybody to find a quote-unquote farm in this country that is run by a quote-unquote farmer. You won't find it. Every farm is a corporation. Not necessarily like a publicly traded corporation like a Microsoft or a General Motors or something. That's what I'm talking about. But I mean, a corporation is in a corpus of people that working together in different capacities formulate an entity that we think of as the farmer, right? Even a family farm, you're not, you don't have one guy there who's doing everything, right? You might not even have, you almost never even have one person who's making all the decisions. Oftentimes you'll have, for example, an uncle and a nephew and a niece, right? And maybe the uncle's the one who's making, you know, the top level executives decisions about really top level stuff, but maybe the, the, the nephew is running the day to day in terms of what's the planting schedule, how are we doing the irrigation, how are we dealing with this pest outbreak, you know, that sort of thing. What do we do if the tractor breaks down? And maybe the niece is the one who's dealing with the marketing side of things. Okay, who, where are we selling? Who are we in contact with? Where's the demand? You know, what, what does our branding look like, et cetera, right? And right there, that's a really common kind of, kind of example. You've got all of a sudden decision-making spread among three different people. Who's the farmer, right? Um, a lot of the farms, quote unquote, that I worked with in California are not a farm in any sort of um, conventionally understood sense of the term. So I might you know, be talking to a farm that has 3,000 acres, but that's not 3,000 acres in one spot. That might be 3,000 acres spread across 25 different plots Wow. that might be 100 miles apart from the most distant to the most near, right? In California, that's very common. And... You know, and so it's it's really interesting. So that's what I mean by like that organizational dimension. And that's something that we don't necessarily think about all, all, all that much. Or, for example, the other example I give is um, we have two different words for people that do cultivation of food in this country. We have farmers and we have farm workers. Right. Mm. Yeah. They both farm. We have two different words for them. That, that's funny. Right. And you can't have a farm without both. Um which is, which is also interesting. So those sorts of dimensions. And, and then the other kind of set of dimensions that I'm always constantly really focused on and thinking about are the knowledge making dimension. And then the way that we inscribe everything else into technology. And what I mean by that is any given piece of technology, um, is a physical manifestation, right? A physical representation of an entire set of design decisions that are based on particular understandings of what is the problem? What is the solution? What are the acceptable side effects, right? Or what are the side effects we're even paying attention to? Um, what are we willing to pay? Who's going to use it? Who's going to make it? Who's going to sell it? 
You know what I mean? And so for all of that gets embedded into a piece of technology, because once a piece of technology is out there, it's got a kind of staying power in the world. It's got some, uh, in technical terms, what we talk about is technological momentum or inertia, right? You see this a lot in, uh, um, you know, climate debates when we talk about power plants, right? You make a decision to build a certain kind of power plant. Well, that power plant's going to be there for decades, right? You don't get, you've sunk a lot of resources and time and energy into that thing. And then the entire network that builds up around it to make, to make it work, right? The electrical grid, the whole set of people that maintain and run the thing, right? Every technology is like that. So they have a kind of stickiness to them, right? Um, and that, that has implications as well. I, um, one of the most exciting projects that I've been working on that we just um, got our first paper accepted just actually earlier this week um, is looking at the, uh, the history of efforts to mechanize the harvest for different kinds of specialty crops. That's fruits and vegetables um, in California. And looking at uh, how across a couple different kinds of crops, you see a very different set of machines emerge um, to sort of, you know, quote unquote, replace <laughs> human labor with machine labor. Um, and of course, there's never a full replacement. You end up with some sort of weird hybrid. Um, but it really spans this incredible spectrum. And in some cases, it just doesn't work at all. Um, and we sort of looked at that and why certain machines emerged in certain ways in certain contexts and not in others, which might seem very similar, right? But for small little differences, um, and they coalesce in a different sort of way. So anyway, so, but yeah, to go back to, again, your, your, your question, it's kind of like pulling on the thread that seems most apparent, like the little, the little bit of the elephant that, that you, can, you can see in that dark cave, right, to sort of draw mangled metaphor to that the old story <laughs> i know what you mean the, yeah, the, the blind man and the elephant of course yeah. yeah um so like start with that little bit of the elephant that you can see and then start to look for the rest of the elephant right to start to really look for the rest of the system and that to me is always the most exciting part because um you know it usually is the case that a lot of people are aware of or have been talking about the salient piece and it's usually not the case that a lot of people have been talking about or thinking about or recognizing everything that's kind of under the surface. You know, it's, it's interesting. You know, I was, I was watching one of your panel discussions um, that was on YouTube uh, earlier this week. And, you know, there was an optimism that you said uh, in this panel discussion, you said um, that you, you, you love the idea of the renewable resource is of human ingenuity and you know and i the, the the your ability to look at how all of these systems kind of converge together but recognize the really the endurance that it takes to kind of unpack those systems to be able to find where that particular uh, problem may lead to i was wondering if you could maybe expand more on like that type of optimism that you see in the kind of you know, human ingenuity because as your research and everything that we're seeing with all the different science uh that's going along with food security and climate change and all that we have some real serious uh challenges i was wondering like where do you see like um that type of optimism for uh, our human ingenuity and the things that you see with that it's a good question. I, I have a really good friend. I talk with him about once a week. We went to grad school together and, and he teaches environmental studies um, at uh, the college university level as well. 
And it's a topic we've talked about on and off for many years now is just how to deal with the weight of a lot of the topics that we spend our working lives, you know, facing every single day. And we have to expose our students to that, you know, um, the sort of catastrophic implications of climate change, climate chaos, really, um, the rapid decline of biodiversity, um, the, the really just extreme levels of environmental injustice. If we look at the way that different kinds of risks and harms and damages are distributed among people on this planet, um, you know, just really extreme differences, extreme inequalities, right. In terms of who has to live with what, um, you know, we can go on and on and on. We can look at the food system. We can look at nitrate pollution and phosphate pollution. We can look at the proliferation of microplastics throughout every medium in our environment. We have no idea what the heck they're going to do. They're in our food and water. We know that. They're in our blood and our lungs. We know that. What does that mean? Nobody knows. Um, you look around and it's really easy to see a lot of really, really, really scary trends happening in the world. And it's our job, right? It's my job. It's his job to, to kind of look those in the face on a regular basis and to help our students look it in the face, right? And to help to a certain extent, the broader public look at those things without flinching. And um, there's a real danger though of A, getting numb to it or B, getting kind of bogged down in despair, right? Or something like that. It's like given the, the magnitude of, um, of some of the, the challenges that we're facing and then, and then sort of dealing with the, the secondary effect that we know that they're our own fault to a certain extent. That's also emotionally difficult to deal with. Not our own fault as individuals per se, but, but, our own faults as societies. Um, I won't say our own fault as humanity because, you know, it's not all of humanity that has contributed to a lot of these problems. It's certain parts of humanity um, have had a much bigger hand than others. And for example, using a lot of fossil fuels or, you know, um, destroying a lot of biodiversity or creating a lot of different kinds of toxic pollutants that are now in our environment and so forth. Um, but anyhow, that's, that's, that's heavy stuff. It's heavy stuff. And, and I'll be honest, I'm not optimistic every day. Some days I get really down. I get really cynical, you know, and, and some days you just want to like bury your head in the sand and say, screw it. What can I do? You know? Um, and so to me, it's always been important to, to think about what keeps me going. Right. And, and to like, snap myself out and to think about ways that others of us can snap ourselves out of that kind of defeatist mindset. Because if we really take that mindset, then what's the point? You know what I mean? What's the point? And I think that different people come to a strategy for facing really, really difficult truths right? In life, different people come to different strategies for, for facing those truths. And it's not like we are without tools to do that. 
I mean, humans for as long as there have been humans, I am sure, have been struggling to deal with, for example, oh, the, the biggest one, right? Our own mortality. Yeah. That's the one truth that we all know, right? Is all of us have a finite time on this earth, right? We are born and we die. And that is true. And um, so we've been dealing with that. And so in some ways, a lot of these problems are that we're looking at are facets of that same kind of mortality, right? Uh, in different scales and in different, different ways. But um, so that's kind of interesting. And, and what's fascinating to me increasingly is the way that what it comes down to in a certain way of looking at it is different forms of, of, um, of faith, right? And some people have spiritual or religious faith that they rely on and that they build on. Um, and there's all sorts of different kinds of faith that you can have. And for me, I, you know, when I try to like sort of articulate my own kind of faith, and it's not something that I do very explicitly or very often in public, it's much more of a private sort of conversation for myself. But the manifestation of that, when I do want to talk about it, often comes out along the lines of what you heard me say in that YouTube video was, well, let's not just look at all the bad things out there, all the dangerous things, all the things that appear catastrophic, right? Or appear really negative that we don't have. We don't have time. We don't have money. We don't have ability, whatever. Well, let's balance that out a little bit. Let's also look at the good things that we have and the things that we have in abundance. And to me, that's where that statement comes from, is that idea of well, at the end of the day, what we do have in abundance is we are human. There's downsides to that. There's limitations to that. But there's also upsides and strengths to that. And one of those is our ability to imagine, to innovate, to move forward into the world with creativity and ingenuity, to envision things that have never before existed in ways of being and ways of working or living together that have never before happened. And I think that is a unique and incredibly powerful capacity that we don't give ourselves enough credit for, at least in the more holistic version of that. We have all these stories about, you know, innovating technology and so forth, but that's such a narrow slice of the human imagination. It's not by any means the whole picture. So, so to me, that's, that's kind of where, where that comes from, right? Is, is in a way it's, it's a, a facet of faith, of a kind of faith that I think every one of us needs to have to get up and live our lives every day. Right. So that, that's, that's what I would say about that. Uh, I, 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 that, that was just so, that was so spot on. I, I just thought that was, that was great. You know, I, I was also wondering, you know, to kind of maybe then put that, you know, I know, I know that you're going to hate me asking this question, but like, you know, you, cause you, you do come at it from so many angles, but like, if you, if you had that kind of ability for a force 
let's say magnifier, you know, to maybe optimize and you could put your thumb on the scale of one of these issues. If it was like better policy or quicker development of scientific breakthroughs, or to some extent kind of shaping culture to be more readily open-minded to act on said policy, where would you put your energy or if the, you know, the imaginary thumb on the scale that you think that would maybe be more Promethean to the extent that it would maybe uh, help kind of swoop in and maybe galvanize the type of change that we need? That is a doozy of a final question. Um, <laughs> I like it. I like it. I like the big one, pulling out the big gun for last. Um, I've been all over the map on that question over the years. Um, and lately, one of the things that, that I've come back to is really starting from the grassroots. You know what I mean? Yeah. The biggest problem in my mind facing society, facing humanity, facing our globe, our country, however you want to define big groups of people is that we have the capacity collectively to impact the entire planet, right? as a species, but we don't know how to control that power, that collective power, right? Each one of us, I think, feels a certain degree of control over our individual lives and maybe varying degrees of control or at least participation in different kinds of communities or families, right? But what we don't have a connection to is, is a smooth connection between what we do as individuals or even as families or neighborhoods or communities and what we do as nations, as a globe, right? And, um, and a lot of the things that we've tried to do at the highest levels are pretty rough around the edges, right? In terms of we make big decisions and they kind of work how we think they do. And they tend to have a lot of consequences and side effects because we, again, don't really know very well how to make big nuanced collective decisions. And what I'm coming back to now is that we need to build up that capacity starting at the ground level. And, and I look at this country, at the United States of America, and I look at the way that we are organized culturally and socially, and it's very atomized. It's very individualistic. And that is a real Achilles heel for us. It's, it's holding us back in so many ways. And it's not across the board. There's different, you know, it's uneven. Some communities, some groups of people are much better at, at working together, at working collectively, at working cooperatively than others. Um, but I think it's, it's true that especially over the past 50, 60, 70, 80 years, the trend has been toward losing a lot of those skills if we ever had them right and we're desperately in this position where we need to build back 
a lot of those skills of how do you do big things together? Because we need to do some big things at the global level. But in so many cases, we can't even do big things at the local level. All you have to do is look at the condition of various of our schools or our roads or our waterways or our food systems, right? To see that, you know, we half the time we can't even control what goes on or have a real say in what goes on in our own neighborhood, right? Let alone what's happening at the global scale. So when I talk about that leverage point, to me, a lot of what I try to do in, in, in teaching is to help students have an awareness that it's not just what can I do alone as an individual differently, but it's about how can I work with other people around me to do things differently together, to do things better together. And it really is, I think, in a lot of cases, starting from pretty close to ground zero in terms of where we are at as a, as a country, as a society, as a culture. Um, uh, we have a long way to go in order to, to be able to, to tackle those, those things, but it, start, it has to start small, right? So that's why, you know, I've always been really interested in things like the community-supported uh, agriculture model. Right, which is was all about building a sense of community through food distribution, um, or the idea of food hubs, right? Um, things that are not just physical infrastructure, but also kind of a social infrastructure that can begin to give people a framework around which to, again, build our collective imagination about how to work together. That I love that idea of of what you said about that, just being able to, in the act of volunteering and giving food and the type of, um, just the, the, the type of reciprocity that goes along with that really does kind of dissolve that atomization that you were speaking of right there. Uh, and it, 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 there's, it's just a net gain in all parts of that. Do, do you know where have, have there been some of the more successful food distribution and hubs that you have, uh, have that you've seen in your studies? <laughs> there's all kinds. There are all kinds. And, um, you know, what's, what's, really interesting to me is that so many of them come from um, communities that we tend to, I think, from kind of like the institutional level lens, look at and think of as being communities in need, right? Or communities that are lacking. Um, so for example, one of my favorite stories is about how our cooperative extension system in this country um, is, which is, was really about is very old. It dates back to the early part of the 20th century, which is really about getting um, liaisons out into every single county in the country to be a go-between between communities and especially like agricultural communities and universities, right? Um, and and to, to, to work as that go-between to kind of build community. And I was listening to a podcast a couple of weeks ago where there was a scholar out of Michigan, yeah, out of Michigan. And he was talking about 
what he was sort of referring to as indigenous extension agents and indigenous knowledge holders, um, you know, in Native American indigenous traditions and so forth. And he said they weren't like the scientists that you see in, you know, Western institutions. Because like the indigenous knowledge holder is out in the community making knowledge with the community, doing peer review from day one with every member of the community to make really robust truth, really robust facts, really robust knowledge. Um, and uh, so anyway, so the, the cooperative extension system that, that we have in this country was actually pioneered by um, black farmers in the American South during the time of segregation, when there was, you know, separate but equal was an official legal doctrine in this country where, you know, black people could be barred from accessing services that were intended for white people, you know, under the legal, um, uh, you know, idea that you, you, they could be separate but equal services, right? And uh, what, in, what in effect that ended up meaning is that black farmers in this particular case didn't have a lot of amenities that white farmers enjoyed. And uh, they had to come up with different ways to, you know, to get what they needed. And they essentially came up with the cooperative extension model, right, as a survival strategy, right? But it was very much about networking a community of people, each of whom had a bit of expertise in this, a bit of expertise in that, bringing that together, forming collective expertise, taking it on the road and using it as a teaching model, right? So this is what the work of, of you know, George Washington Carver, for example, started in this tradition. Um, he's famous for, you know, peanuts and plastic, but he was one of the pioneers of cooperative extension. Um, so, you know, we, you look around and you see all these kind of, of models that are out and about um, and they're there, but we just don't pay much attention to them. The other one that I like to give is, um, you know what the only public bank in the United States, do you know where it is? Uh, is it? Why do I want to say it's like in North Dakota? Am I close? Bing, 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 bing. You are right. <laughs> I don't know why I knew that. <laughs> right? Yeah. North Dakota. Started by farmers because they realized that they needed to have some control over their financial institutions because it's so important to farming, which is, in a, which is a seasonal activity where you only get paid once a year, basically, that it was really important to them to have some control over the financial institutions that basically gave them their seasonal loans to plant their crops, right? That was a farmer-led innovation. But that's the only public bank in the entire country. That's interesting. We have a model. It's just it's never been, yeah. never been used before. Uh, or it's never expanded beyond that, right? It's kind of interesting. I, there's a couple, I guess, now in California, maybe, but it remains to be seen whether they're actually going to work or not. But, but I think that's fascinating, right? That different kinds of ideas. Um, so there, there's these models out and about. And today we see food hubs, like I said. Um, we see food policy councils at city and, and county and even state levels. Our state, being a very tiny state, Rhode Island is a statewide food policy council. Um, other places, it's like the city of Los Angeles will have a food policy council, right? But again, it's, it's these new ways of, of people trying to work together at different scales. But, uh, but it's challenging. It's slow. It's not easy. Um, and a lot of it we're, we're trying to relearn or learn from scratch, right? Some, some skills and some approaches and some strategies. So that's, that's what I got. Um, I need to sign off, but ah, for sure, so for sure.
Um, no, Patrick, this has been fantastic. That, thank you for for I, I knew we went long. I was like, I don't want to stop him because I knew he said an hour, but he's giving me such great stuff. <laughs> well, yeah, once I get going, I have a hard time stopping. But thank you for yeah. hearing me. I appreciate oh, it. For sure. For sure. Thanks for listening. Help spread the word about We Go Places podcast by sharing this episode with one other wildcat. As always, find past and future episodes on Apple or Google Podcasts or any other platform. Just search Wego Vox. That's Wego V O X. You can also stay current by following us on Facebook at Wego Places Podcast or on Twitter at Wego Places. 